1: On this episode of Newt's World, on Tuesday, President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin will speak over a video call. The primary topic of their call will be the buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Many of them are viewing this as a sign of Russia's potential invasion. The last known call between the two presidents was in July, when Russian-based criminal hacking groups launched ransomware attacks against the United States. The Colonial Pipeline hack this past May that resulted in days of gas shortages in parts of the United States was attributed to the Russians. There are many signs from Putin that they have a plan to defeat America. My guest today is an expert in understanding Putin and how he operates. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Rebecca Koffler. She is a Russian-born U.S. intelligence expert who has worked with the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. She is the author of Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be here, Mr. Speaker. Frankly,
1: I think in the long run, China is a bigger threat than Russia. But I do think that the immediate threat, the aggressiveness of Putin, the fact that they do still have a remarkably big military for the size of their economy, and they have a long tradition of being in competition with us. As Putin once said, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And as a former KGB officer, I have a hunch he would love to do everything he could to reestablish that. One brief war story. I was on a congressional delegation in 1993, during the initial collapse with Yeltsin in charge, and I met with the then vice president of what had become Russia, and the room we met in was huge. It had like a 40 or 50 foot long wall on one side. There was a map of the Soviet Union, and I said to him, being semi-clever, gosh, here we are in Russia, but that's a map of the Soviet Union, and his answer to me was, yes, it will be like that again someday. So I took that to be an example that while their system had collapsed, their ambitions had not. As you know, the reporting that came out last Friday and over the weekend shows the Russian military buildup on the Ukrainian border, both the New York Times reporting what's driving Putin's Ukrainian brinksmanship and the Washington Post reporting Russian planning massive military offensive against Ukraine involving 175,000 troops, U.S. intelligence warns. Now, That led the White House to announce over the weekend that President Biden and President Putin will have a video conference call on Tuesday. And I'm curious, what's your general take on what the U.S. reaction should be at this point?
2: Well, I think there's a difference between what the reaction should be and unfortunately what it will be. But in my view, we shouldn't have been placed in that position to begin with when we're constantly reacting. Putin is always two steps ahead of our national security apparatus and certainly President Biden's administration, where we constantly have to think, how do we respond to the cyber attacks? How do we respond to military buildup? The reaction should be strong, Nude, but unfortunately, there's no political will and there's no playbook, so to speak, on our side to deter Putin from what he's doing. Because we haven't reacted in the past, whether it's the invasion of Georgia, whether it's the annexation of Crimea, or Putin's cyber warfare that he has waged on the United States for the past 20 years. So at this point, Putin has gotten the idea that we're not going to be doing anything significant in response. And in fact, it's his window of opportunity to achieve his ambition, because the assessment is the Biden presidency is weak when it comes to foreign policy, and it is completely mired in all sorts of domestic issues. And that's why Putin is acting up. Somebody
1: suggested that one possible strategy would be for Putin to create a crisis on the Ukrainian border, then solve the crisis, and during the period of relief, absorb Belarusia, whose dictator is very pro-Moscow. Does that strike you as plausible, or do you think he's basically ignoring Belarusia, and the real game for him right now is Ukraine?
2: I believe the real game is Ukraine. In all honesty, Putin does not have to invade Belarus. Belarus is already part of the so-called union, right? As you pointed out in your opening statement, Vladimir Putin would love to reconstitute the former Soviet Union in some shape or form. It may not be called the former Soviet Union, but it's certainly called right now already the Eurasian Union, and they colloquially refer to it as the Union. So Belarus, you know, is already there. It's part of the union. So Ukraine is really the prize that Putin is after. And he views Ukraine and the Russians, you know, in general, Putin's national security apparatus view Ukraine as part of a strategic security perimeter on which they relied for centuries for their security to protect them from the so-called foreign invasions. And so that is why the plan is to integrate, again, you know, whether it's by an invasion or whether it's by installing a pro-Putin government in Ukraine by orchestrating some sort of coup. That remains to be seen, but Putin's tactic is also intimidation and strategic ambiguity as far as what he's going to do by pronouncing red lines. And then he has the flexibility to do whatever the opportunity presents to him because the force posture allows him all of the above right now, from staging a coup all the way to a multi-front offensive operation on Kiev.
1: Ukraine's a pretty big country, but is it your sense that the size of the force that at least is being leaked, 175,000, would be capable of actually getting all the way to Kiev? Or would he just take a large bite?
2: Yes, the force posture is capable. Whether he will do it or not, I don't believe he is going to swallow the entire Ukraine. It just doesn't make any sense at this point. I think the force posture right now is between 94... 1,000 to 114,000, but it also includes heavy weaponry, including tanks, artillery. It includes a GRU and SVR, intelligence operatives. It's very similar to the false posture that these Russian military forces had during the invasion of Crimea, you know, when the so-called little green men. This is how Western analysts describe the so-called hybrid warfare that Putin has been waging. But it will, as you said, the plan is to escalate even further and beef up that force posture to 175 men strong, including 100 BTGs, the battalion tactical groups, But as I said, I do not believe that a full-scale invasion of the entire country of Crimea is in the cards. He doesn't have to do that because to prevent Ukraine's admission into NATO, all he needs to do is continue destabilizing operations and maintain lack of territorial integrity in that country and maintain a frozen conflict, just like he's doing in Georgia and Transistria.
1: I was in Ukraine a couple of years ago and met with a retired American four-star general who is advising and looking at what's happening with the Ukrainian military. And he said at the time that the Russians were routinely practicing with their artillery. It was sort of the graduation exercise of the artillery school was to go and fire rounds into Ukraine. And that it was a real problem because Ukraine has no capacity to cope with Russian long-range artillery. And I just thought it was interesting that there was this constant grinding process underway. Do you sense that same pattern that Putin's actually pretty comfortable getting a little bit every day? Because if you get a little bit every day, sooner or later you have the whole cake.
2: Right, right. Exactly, Mr. Speaker. So what you have just described is very consistent with Russian doctrine and strategy. This type of approach achieves three objectives. First is exactly what you say, build up until you have sufficient force to do whatever it is that you need. Second, by varying the force posture, dialing up, dialing down, Because remember, we had a similar situation back in May, June, July timeframe when President Biden and Vladimir Putin had the summit. By varying this force posture, the Russians are trying to desensitize U.S. and Western intelligence services from obtaining proper indications and warnings to achieve strategic surprise. Whenever he is ready to do whatever it is that he wants to do, he wants it to be a surprise for us so that we're not ready. So he keeps us guessing. And then the third objective is to psychologically dislodge the adversary. The Russians are astute students of Sun Tzu Right. And they believe that it's very important to destabilize the adversary psychologically before you take it over and defeat militarily. So that's why he's laying this groundwork where he wants to be able to have flexibility to do whatever the opportunity presents him to do.
1: From your perspective, having studied Putin and having written Putin's playbook, would he basically be relatively happy with an agreement? Because I noticed he said in the last couple of days that he liked a legally binding agreement that Ukraine would not be allowed into NATO. In your mind, would that be a major goal for him?
2: I don't believe so, sir. I think it's a red herring. I think Putin already knows that, A, The United States is not going to give any kind of legal guarantees, any kind of promises. He's been requesting the same thing with regard to missile defense, right? The Russians have always wanted that we promise to them that missile defense is not going to be targeting Russia, right? So I think he already knows, A, that we're not going to do that, and B, he's going to do whatever he's going to do, because even in a hypothetical scenario, let's say the Biden presidency is so weak and so out of touch with reality, then they just go ahead and give them this legal agreement, right? Putin is not going to trust it. Because the one thing that the Russians always whine about is that under democracy, Our presidents change Potentially every four years And people in charge You know, Congress We have continuous changes And the new person will come in Somebody like, let's say Former President Trump Whom the media portrayed as a softer on Russia But he was quite the opposite Right? So Putin is not going to trust He already set his plan That is my professional assessment And he placed Biden sort of He gave him a checkmate, if you will. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. He's going to do whatever he's going to do.
1: Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition... One ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at newtgingrichsilvercoin.com. That's newtgingrichsilvercoin.com. Now, let me just take a minute, if you don't mind, and talk about you, and then we'll get back to talking about Putin. And your fascinating background, as I understand that you were born in Kazakhstan. Right. Which part of Kazakhstan?
2: So I was born and raised in a small town called Ust-Kamenogorsk, which is relatively close to China. It's eastern Kazakhstan, close to China.
1: I was in nur Sultan a couple years ago. It was at the time called Astana, and then it changed its name. Would that be north of where you were born?
2: Yes, north. Isn't it funny how they change every North Sultan? Oh, my goodness gracious.
1: Which is named for the last dictator.
2: Of course. Yes, yes. And these are the type of characters that we are trying to, quote, unquote, democratize, right?
1: It's a little bit like Stalingrad, which went back to being Volgograd.
2: Right, right. Probably not for too long, Mr. Speaker, right? Given that the attitudes of the Russians, you know, the positive attitude towards Stalin is growing, right? So I wouldn't rule out the possibility they're gonna get back to Stalingrad again.
1: Or it could become Putingrad at some appropriate
2: No kidding. I think you're right, you're spot on. What was it like growing up in Kazakhstan? I'll tell you this, it was very different than what I'm watching right now my American children growing up, I continuously remind them how blessed and how lucky they are to live in the best country in the world, you know, where we have everything to eat. We have heating in winter. And in summer, we have hot and cold water. So (laughs) basically, I mean, from the family standpoint, it was wonderful. You know, my parents were... Against the Soviet communist system, they disagreed with it, and they raised us, me and my sister, to learn English so that eventually we would go to America. Who knows how my mother knew about America, but we did. We listened to Voice of America and Radio for Europe, so surreptitiously, of course, it was illegal. So family was great, but in terms of living under a socialist system, it's pure hell, Mr. Speaker. I've written two opinion pieces that were published on Fox News where I described things like my teeth being drilled at the dentist office without Novocaine, which is pure torture. This is to demonstrate that when everything is free, nothing is available. So it worries me so deeply, this monumental shift of my adopted homeland leftward where people don't understand what socialism really is. It's not what the leftists believe it is. It's a dictatorship, it's lack of freedom, and it's equal poverty for all, except if you're part of the ruling class. So that's what it was like growing up.
1: How did you make the migration from Kazakhstan to the United States?
2: So first, I went just as my mother wanted, you know, I was very diligent at learning English since third grade and even before that. And then I went to one of the best universities in Moscow, studying English And French and Russian as a foreign language. And during that time, I had an opportunity to go to Great Britain on an exchange program. And also, I worked as a tour guide, as an interpreter, taking Americans and the Brits around the former Soviet Union. And I established friends. And then eventually, my friends told me, well, you have to come to America. And I did. And first I visited, and then I initiated and finalized the immigration process. And that's how I ended up here. And since 1989, and every year, sir, I celebrate the day that I landed in America, the land of freedom and opportunity and justice. So
1: did Perestroika and Glasnost make it easier for you to leave? I mean, in the Stalinist prayed you couldn't have left.
2: Correct. Yes, sir. Gorbachev loosened the border. So until him, it was very difficult to leave. You had to have not only an entry visa to whatever country you want to visit, but you have to have an exit visa. Back during the Soviet Union, we had a joke, one ruble to get in, 10 rubles to get out. (laughs) So the Soviets would not let their own citizens travel especially to the Western world. Why? Because A, they didn't want them to defect. And B, they didn't want them to see what capitalism is really about, the prosperous lifestyle, right? So the first time when I came to America, my friends took me to the giant grocery store here in Washington, D.C. area, and I saw Red Delicious Apples. I literally broke down crying because first I didn't think they were real because they were too clean and Russian stuff is all muddy. And then once I understood that they were edible and real, I just cried because the Soviets lied to its people for so long. And that's why they wouldn't allow people to travel so that they think that the Soviet system is superior and all it was is what is Potomkin village.
1: You may remember that when Khrushchev first visited the United States, Eisenhower encouraged him to travel around. And when his plane came in to land in New York, he looked out and saw all the cars and said to his staff, the Americans are extraordinarily clever. They've brought all the cars in the country to New York to impress me with how many cars they have. And it took him a little while to realize this was just normal. And there's a book called Fleeing Moscow by the highest ranked Soviet to defect. He'd been the number two guy at the United Nations. In the opening of the book, he says, he gets off the plane in New York and gets in a car to go down to the Soviet residence. And as they're driving down the street, he sees all these little stores and they have fruit and vegetables sitting outside with no guards. And he said he suddenly realized that everything he'd been told about it was a lie because if the Americans were so rich that nobody was going to steal the fruit and vegetables it had no relationship. And this guy was a very senior person. And he said from that moment on, he began thinking about how to defect because everything he'd been told was a lie.
2: That is exactly my experience, sir. I remember also when I landed at JFK in New York, September 13, 1989, it was already afternoon. And I saw all those lights and I thought that there was an emergency of some sort. That there were so many cars, what was happening? And you know, only to realize it was quite normal. And my father, who eventually also immigrated, we brought him in, my sister and I, it's ingrained in him that people steal things. And he would try to like protect things. And we always tell him, Dad, nobody cares. Everybody has everything here. But the Russians would always tried to secure their stuff because not many people would have even as simple things as like a refrigerator. You had to wait for 10 years to buy a vehicle, a car, for 10 years to install a landline phone. Okay, this is the socialist system.
1: You may remember the old joke about the man who went to buy a car. They said it would be years, but we could mark you down for wednesday morning three years from now and he said oh no no it's got to be in the afternoon because the plumber is coming in the morning
2: (laughs) yes mr speaker remember it very well unfortunately for me sir for us it was not a joke it was reality it was a life
1: sadly with the current logistics screw up we have a little taste of the soviet system because a lot of things we take for granted on real-time delivery are certainly taking months rather than being immediate, we'll solve it. But it is a little taste, as you said earlier, that you get enough socialism, you get nothing else. And it's amazing. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com.
0: CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today.
1: So let me ask you, because you've immersed yourself, you've served in the intelligence community, you have a remarkable background, and you've written this terrific new book, Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. Can you take us inside... Putin's head as you understand it, and describe his worldview?
2: Sure. There are several events and factors that shape Putin's worldview. First and foremost, it's the fact that he is a former, former being in quotes, KGB officer. KGB was an intelligence agency that combined both foreign and domestic intelligence functions. One of the things that many people don't understand about the Russian intelligence services, and specifically the KGB, is that for the Soviets, it was as important to protect themselves from internal threats, such as dissent, As much as from external threats, because they understood that the system is oppressive and people sooner or later would revolt and they would continuously monitor everybody with various surveillance means to prevent the so-called regime change. So that shapes Putin's worldview. How does it translate into his personality? He's very suspicious of everything. He cannot be dealt with at face value. When you negotiate with him from the Russian perspective, so Putin would say, what's mine is mine. What's yours is negotiable. That's kind of how it goes. So when President Biden tried to reach out to Putin, handing him a roster of 16 sectors of critical infrastructure appealing to the former KGB officer not to target it with cyber strikes. Putin's interpretation of this is that, oh, this person is weak. He is begging me not to target this. I'm going to do that anyway. And oh, by the way, you know, everything else is on the table in terms of cyber warfare, right? So this is the type of mentality. The second very important event is, as you pointed out earlier, is that Putin views, as many Russians, by the way, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a very sad event for the Russians and it must be reversed. And that's why we see effectively Putin's playbook unfolding right in front of our eyes when he uses all sorts of non-kinetic options. And I described all of those five options in my book, cyber and space being just a couple of them, and then military component all the way to nuclear. This is why we've seen this anti satellite missile test, hypersonic missile test, and all of these things, where he is laying the groundwork to fulfill his strategic ambitions and reverse the collapse of the Soviet Union. That the Russians, by the way, blame the United States for. They believe that we defeated the Soviet Union and now they want to prevent. The defeat of Russia. And therefore, Putin is waging an offensive operation under the pretext of defensive strategy.
1: When you describe him, and I agree with you entirely, that he is best understood as a KGB officer, given the training and the fact that he ultimately was assigned to East Germany, where he clearly was spending as much time or more watching the East Germans as he was watching the West. When George W. Bush met with him, And Bush had some comment about, I looked into his eyes and I saw his soul. My reaction was, it was impossible to see the soul of a KGB officer. By definition, you wouldn't be in the KGB if they could see your soul. Am I missing something?
2: You're spot on, Mr. Speaker. In fact, when I heard that I even thought that clearly the Russians studied it and profiled former President Bush, just like they do it with every president. And they knew that he's a religious man. And so Putin was effectively running an influence operation, being an intelligence officer, on our former president, exploiting what. Putin would perceive as a vulnerability, the man of faith, right? Because he was also talking about the cross that his grandmother gave Putin. And I thought to myself, you wouldn't be in KGB if you were religious. Soviet Union was an atheist country. Religion was outlawed. It was illegal. In fact, my family, or so my family story goes, that my grandmother secretly baptized me and my sister because it was illegal. But my parents were non-religious. And just to demonstrate to you, people feared the ruling class, the Communist Party, And so certainly if you're a KGB officer, you would not be admitted if you somehow had links to religious people or religious family.
1: You may remember on Red Square, there's a building that's just beyond the old Goom store that was a church that was actually turned into a men's urinal by Stalin.
2: Oh my gosh, sir, you're telling me something I don't know.
1: I visited it and had been turned back into a church And one of the interesting complexities of Putin is he's actually very close to the Russian Orthodox hierarchy. And much like the czars did, he's using them to strengthen his own position and in return giving them some privileges that they had not had since 1917. But I think it's a political act, not a religious act.
2: I completely agree with you. The Russian Orthodox Church has always been penetrated by Russian intelligence services, Right now, when I try to warn some of the American conservatives, religious people about Putin using religion as a weapon, effectively, I'm getting a pushback. And a lot of Americans feel that religion is under attack here from the left, and therefore, they feel like they can get close to the Russians. And obviously not every religious Russian is using religion as a weapon. They're truly right now people of faith in Russia. But the government, under the guise of being religious, is using the church to achieve their own hostile Ambitions and also for propaganda and disinformation reasons.
1: You know, when I mentioned Stalingrad, you mentioned that he's coming back into vogue. Claire Christiansen and I wrote a book on Trump versus China a couple years ago, and I was very surprised when we were doing the research, and I'd been looking at China for a long time, but I had not realized how deeply Stalinist their core values were and how much they were offended by Khrushchev's secret speech where he denounced Stalin, and they regarded it as an act of heresy. So in a sense, I suspect Xi Jinping and Putin can have conversations where they see each other as part of the same dialectical side against the democratic West. How concerned are you that ultimately, there will be a Russian Chinese alliance against us, and that our planning has to assume that we may have to deal with both of them, not just one of them?
2: So it's a complicated question. So I know that the U.S. intelligence right now is assessing that the Chinese-Russian alliance is getting stronger. I don't agree with that assessment. I think it's a fake strategic alliance. This is why I believe this. Russia perceives China as threat number two. The U.S. and NATO has been codified by the Russians in their military doctrine as threat number one, but China is a long-term threat number two for them because the Russian general staff has been assessing the Chinese development and military modernization and economic advancements and advancements in technology, and they're very worried, and especially given the long border with China, the Russian military is also preparing plans to be able to defend themselves, so to speak, from China. They believe that it's possible that China could try to integrate the Far East without using military means, using economic means. So from that standpoint, there will never be a real strategic partner. Now, here's the nuance. Obviously, the United States is perceived by both Putin and Xi as a threat and that something needs to be neutralized. Could they somehow synchronize their operations at purely superficial level you know let's say the takeover of taiwan and the takeover of ukraine or simply synchronize the operations to make us believe that they would do that yes but in terms of real integration That is not possible because Russia would never integrate with an enemy. And in fact, Russia does not have any true allies. They either have subordinates or countries that they perceive as their vassals, so to speak, or... They have adversaries. There's nothing in between. So all that talk about strategic partnership is, again, disinformation by Russia and China. They want us to believe that they will do something like that.
1: Let me ask you one last thing. When we hear about Russian cyber criminals and Russian sophisticated hacking, I'm dubious that those can exist without some kind of tacit approval from the Kremlin, just the nature of the Russian system, those things are trackable. Is it your working assumption that if we get hit by a major cybercrime with a Russian link, that it's almost certainly tacitly approved by the dictatorship?
2: It's highly likely and even almost certainly, as we would say in the community. And here's why. It's a standard Russian intelligence tradecraft to use Third parties to conduct cyber operations against such competent adversary in their view as the United States. Because you need nation state level capability to mount operations on something like colonial pipeline because they understand that there would be a blowback. So they need the backing. Of the Russian state. And this tradecraft is known to U.S. intelligence community and it's known to U.S. law enforcement community. So for the life of me, I don't understand why President Biden did not have the guts to hold Putin responsible. He said, oh, this is Russia-based hackers. Well, former President Trump had no problem to have his Department of Justice indicted 30 GRU officers who also worked through third parties. It's a very standard technique. All of a sudden now we can't name Russian state as the one responsible entity. That is absurd.
1: Well, it could be that the Senate is not as tough a training ground as the KGB. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you also for writing Putin's playbook Russia's secret plan to defeat America. You've done a major contribution to the survival of the United States. And I really appreciate your knowledge and your willingness to take the time to help us better understand what is going on. So thank you very, very much.
2: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's such an honor to speak with you and tell Americans to provide the warning because I felt like there's no coverage, all these disparate incidents reporting, but nobody is really pulling it together and telling Americans what it really means and why the Russians are acting up the way that they're acting up. So I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Thank you to my guest, Rebecca Koffler. You can get a link to buy her book, Putin's Playbook. Russia's secret plan to defeat America, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts, and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: The world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know what were they thinking? Backroom deals, huge amounts of money, CIA secrets, sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way, this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning: It's even messier than you thought.